0: Hey everybody, how's it going? I hope you're well. It's Monday the 4th of May when I'm recording this, which uh, begins the final week of my 20s. So a uh, countdown till real adulthood can begin. Uh, it's also the day that my social media feeds have been littered with the yearly dose of May the 4th be with you Tributes and GIFs and memes and posts. So uh, here's to another 365 days of Disney shoveling yet another soulless reboot of Star Wars down our throats. It's also an interesting week for West Australians. This is the second week of uh, the new relaxed gathering laws. So if you can uh, find yourself a group of ten people or nine others, you can uh, socialise a little bit more, they say. A couple days ago, I caught up with my friend, Malcolm Clark, who is an incredibly talented musician in many kinds of ways, but would be most well-known for his work in the Sleepy Jackson as the drummer for the majority of the time that band was together. They made two full-length albums. One was 2001's debut, Lovers, and they followed that up with personality. One was a spider, one was a bird in 2006. They won about five or six, maybe seven Arias uh, while they were together. Tour of the world, they got to play on Conan O'Brien, for example. And um, it was really good to chat with Mal about those years being with the band, making those records. um, Got a really good insight into the second album especially. And I remember seeing the Sleepy Jackson when I was 17 at the Big Day Out in Perth, and they just tore the stage up. (laughs) And and at the very end, Mal jumped out the front from behind the kit and started pulling his drums apart and one by one threw each piece of the drum set over the back of the stage. And uh, a fellow named Sean Sibs another drummer around town was uh out the back there to uh catch (laughs) each snare and tom as it fell from the sky and uh it was funny watching him run around trying to catch them before they'd hit the ground but i was a big fan of the band and their records and um just incredible songwriting and, and production so um it was really great to chat to mal about all that and also just find out what he's been up to during all of this so uh anyway without further ado
1: here
0: he is, Malcolm Clark. Malcolm Clark. G'day, mate. Hey, buddy. How you doing? How are you? I'm good. So? I'm pretty good. Looks like you've got a pretty nifty studio set up in that room you're in.
2: I just crammed everything into this little room because I thought that um, the world was going to end, so I just smashed it all in here. I thought I could lock myself in. i will be fine.
0: Yeah, it looks like you got like a rock and roll bunker in there. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a, it's a nice little haven.
2: But uh, just trying to find some inspiration to do stuff, that's the, that's the main thing. Well,
0: yeah, what have you been getting up to this time? I've been, I've been enjoying your uh, your videos on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, the, the first the
2: first sort of couple of weeks are coming back because I went away on holiday for the first time in a couple of years.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Impromptu, booked a holiday and left like three days later.
0: <laughs> yeah. So. Where'd you go? Went
2: to Thailand. This little island just off of Phuket.
0: And that was a couple months ago.
2: Yeah. Uh, it was magical. Like left left Perth and, you know, knew that there was a, you know, there was something going on in China but not really, didn't, hadn't really hit over here. And then when we came back, it was like full on, like everything had changed.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny how that all kind of rolls out. I mean, I was going just to Melbourne for a, a festival um, I played with Draft and we were hearing about coronavirus but everyone was kind of laughing about it, you know, like it was the new SARS or whatever and mm. and um, which, I mean, it's not the SARS is particularly funny but I think, you know, it's that natural thing, people start... Kind of taking the piss out of it, and the fact that it was called coronavirus, I think everyone thought it was kind of funny. Yeah, it's, and it's, it was. Everyone was just joking about it at the well, show. It's like played. one of
2: those things that's happening over there, or what's happening in another country, kind of thing, you know.
0: Yeah, it, it wasn't serious yet, but at the airport, people were starting to wear masks, and there were all these warnings, um, and people asking, you know, had you have you been to China in the last X amount of days? And we actually we got to the Perth Airport to fly to Melbourne, um, and they told us. The, the plane we were getting on was coming direct from an international uh, airport and was just continuing straight on to Melbourne and no one was getting off the plane in Perth. So we had to go through international security and do like two loads of of, of security checks and everything just to get on a plane to go to Melbourne. It was really weird. Yeah, right. And um, the plane was coming from London. And then when we got out at Melbourne, we, we, we were in with all the international people. Mm. So it's like that. So that was immediately like compl- a, a weird experience with all the coronavirus stuff going around, and you know, people yeah. wearing masks and sort of asking you where you'd been. And, but uh, pretty that nice. was—I mean, that's like February that I'm talking. So yeah. Well, yeah.
2: <clears throat> the thing that uh, that I'm I'm finding fascinating at the moment is like what you know, like you get the media and stuff like that, but it's like what's not been talked about, you know. Hmm. and and something that's not been talked about is like I'm not sure you're in the same boat as to uh, most of all of our friends and stuff is like we've just done two two or three month or two months worth of benefit shows for the fires you know and it's like what what, what are all those people doing like there's thousands of houses that are destroyed and 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 it's like uh, you know we don't you don't hear any of that like it's not even it's not even talked about the last posts were 3 months ago if you if you type in fires you know, Australian fires.
0: Right. So you're saying what happened to everyone who was affected by the fires now yeah, moving I mean, into this situation?
2: Yeah, it's like, it's just, it, it's bizarre. It's just the focus has been shifted onto this thing and there's all this other shit going on.
0: Well, imagine like, if uh, like a few weeks after your house burning down, you were told all you can do is stay at home.
2: Yeah, and that's what exactly. And it's like, I've, you know, I'm like, what what's going on with all this?
0: You know? Yeah. It's it's crazy. Have you been, um, you're, we're in the same boat as musicians. You know, you would have had everything you would normally be doing with yourself for work, and, and everything has is, is completely changed now, I imagine. Yeah,
2: well, that's it. I mean, it's kind of good to have a bit of a break, to be honest with you. I reckon that's, you know, that's, there is a positive to it.
0: But yeah, at it's the same time, um, to be able to have that positive side of it, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. You know? But
2: yeah when it when it sort of first kicked in, I was just super super anxious and you know, it caused a lot of anxiety for the first time, and I was just worried about everyone, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm like I'm like yeah i'm I'm doing all right, you know, it's just like i'm I'm used to being in this sort of mediocre financial situation and so but yeah, it's like I was just like, what is everyone else doing and yeah, so I was a bit concerned and started to um. Yeah, just started to sort of feel a bit depressed and stuff as well, which I found a bit
0: strange, you know. Yeah, you know, it's funny that the waves of things like depression and anxiety and the various ways you absorb all the information that's coming out. I think I'm the kind of person that I see the information but I don't really absorb it or deal with it properly at first. I just kind of go, okay, all right, so that's what we're doing. And then a week later it'll hit me. So I've had these Mm. periods of... Just being fine with it and thinking I oh, should be right and you know give it a few months and things will be back to normal and then some days I'm like you know the world's actually not really going to just go back to normal anytime soon. The weirdest moment for me was probably yesterday reading I think it was the health minister or something I forget who it was but they, they were saying the reality of the big concerts and music festivals and large gatherings like that of thousands and thousands of people are not going to be remotely on the cards for perhaps another two summers like very dependent on (laughs) when there's a vaccine. So until there's some immunity, that's just not going to happen at all. And that made me realise, man, that's as far as the music industry is concerned, that's such a huge chunk of what keeps it alive in terms of the economic side of things, which is going to trickle down in a bad way in the way that affects the rest of the the industry as well. I mean, the thought of there being no festivals mm. and what that means for everything for I guess I've been thinking in terms of like six months up until I heard that, you know. So it's a heavy adjustment, mm. you know.
2: Yeah, and, it's you know, let's talk about things going back to normal. It's never – there's, there's going to be a new normal for sure. Yeah, exactly. You know?
0: There's definitely going to be a new normal. We just um, had a Skype with some friends of ours over in, in L.A., who are both filmmakers and they were talking about all the, you know, everyone in LA's LA got about six or seven projects they're developing at, at at all points in time. And and they're saying, like, you know, all these scripts we've been writing and all these ideas we have for movies, the world that your movie can exist in now is completely different. Like, do people even shake hands in movies anymore? Is that is that a reality? You know? You <laughs> think, fuck yeah. yeah. You know, that's I've mostly been trying to fill the time by. I think I've written about three albums in the last six weeks. Oh, that's pretty cool, yeah. No, I was, I was creatively inspired at the
2: start there because I was like there was, there was literally nothing I could do. Usually, you know, do I do lots of different types of work in the in the music industry or well, the entertainment industry, I suppose they call it, as to always be able to be employable, I suppose, you know, hmm. <laughs> not expecting the whole thing to shut down. So it's like, oh, if this stops happening, you know, we can do this, we can do that. So the first time I've just had to like literally sit at home and, you know,
0: it's like, okay, what are we going to
2: do here? So I just started making animations because I thought that's something that takes a lot of time.
0: <laughs> and now you have the time. <laughs>
2: i got the time. It's distracting.
0: Yeah, if, um, if, I mean for folks who are listening, you've been putting up these videos on Facebook where you've done like stop motion animations with these little frogs.
2: Yeah, I was sitting there playing the piano one time and... um uh these little frogs uh were a christmas present from my mother and they just kind of sit and they just they just sit there and stare but always looking at them <laughs> play the piano and i was just like i just sat there one morning and it's just like i, I just kind of pictured them sort of dancing around and i was like oh and there's this a free app that you can get on your phone stop motion oh cool. really yeah really easy to use it's kind of cool and and uh and so I did a little animation, and I was like, "That looks pretty funny." And then, yeah, each morning when I'm having a shower, I just keep visualizing other things that they can do, and I just piss myself laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, I did that for a bit, and then got bored. <laughs> 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 no, I'll finish it off. But uh, yeah, that's I think that's that's been the problem. I always get bored stuff. Well, and that's people.
0: probably why you have an obsession with doing so many different creative things, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. Because most people would know you as the drummer from the Sleepy Jackson, but people that know you better know that you do all kinds of things in music. I mean, you you write songs, you play pretty much every instrument I can think of, and there's this whole audio-visual side. I saw you do um, Pink Floyd's The Wall from front to back live with a band once, and you'd line the whole show up with the the movie itself, didn't you?
2: Yeah, it was just another experiment that went A little bit out of control. It's like I start these things, and it's like, oh shit! Okay, I'm halfway through it now. But they're just like, you know, they're like mind experiments. I really want to see if they'll work. So, the idea of that one was was just to have a whole band play playing live while the because there's not much dialogue in the movie. You know, Mm. i watched it watched the film again. It's an 80s film. It's pretty crazy. But watched it again a few years ago, and I was like, oh man, I'd love to hear this with with a live band. I wonder if that's possible, and I kind of stripped, stripped all the audio and rebuilt it again. All the explosions and stuff like that,
0: which I imagine that would have fed into another experiment. I think you did afterwards. There was a video you put up last week of we jamming along with um, a video oh, of Marvin Gaye, Gay, and you were playing piano. Yeah, so that was that was just like yeah, having having the. The audio of the singer while the band plays along, and you've done a, a live show of that. Yeah, we did it a couple of times. We did one
2: at Newport and one at Badlands. That was that was pretty cool, but it, it also was confusing for the audience because they're trying to work out what's going on as well. So the second show we kind of
0: explained it a little bit better. So, so are they watching a projected image of a famous singer. Yeah, so like Elvis is up there singing. So he's like the singer and then we're playing along. Is that is that hard, especially with the old artists where they're, I mean, the the timing of what they're singing to, they're singing along to a band just playing to the beat of their own drum? Yeah,
2: well, obviously, not, yeah, they. when it comes to like trying to keep in time, I'd have to, the first thing I'd do is get the song and just sit there and just tap, like record a, a tempo mm. and create a click track.
0: So I had to do the same thing with the Floyd, right? And, and so, and so, so. you're doing that. You would do that for the whole song, I imagine, so that it can push and pull.
2: Yeah, with. yeah. Because the James Brown stuff, like when it goes into the chorus, like the whole band speeds up. You don't notice it listening to it because everyone, the tempo is is You know, um, David Bowie as well. You know, um, uh, Ziggy Stardust. If you listen to it, when it goes into the chorus, it speeds up so much, and then it slows down when it goes into the back into the verse. You know, you only notice when people when a band goes out of time from itself. So if a band's playing to a solid click track, you know, you if someone goes out of time, you hear it. You know, but when the whole band
0: moves the tempo, you can blame Elvis. You blame Elvis, yeah. (laughs) He's like, oh,
1: (laughs) remember
0: when? I think it might have been my first or second trip to LA and you were there doing some recording and I got off the plane and went straight to your Airbnb in Santa Monica. And <laughs>
2: That's right. <laughs> uh, I think we, we had to leave. We had to go to the studio or something, but I was like, yeah, keys under the mat, let yourself in.
0: Yeah, because I didn't have anywhere to, to really stay. And I lined up a whole bunch of shots of tequila for you on the table. We went and saw another band go and do the, the Pink Floyd thing. Like that night, I think. Oh yeah, that was, um, was Roger Waters'
2: son from memory. So yeah, Harry Harry Waters was playing in that. Yeah, but the interesting thing about that is that you know because because they're all solid players and all read music and stuff. You know, they do that they do that thing every week where they get a whole bunch because you know in LA there's a whole bunch of musicians that are on tour and then when they come back home they just sort of hang in with their buddies. You know, yeah. So that every, each week they did. They would have different themed stuff going on down there, you know, similar to the record club, I guess.
0: Yeah, well, that night we but, went is, um, I think called, or it was called Soundcheck Live at it's right. like a bowling club bar isn't it it's like a lucky yeah, a bowling, alley. bowling alley um yeah. a friend of mine a guy called Derek Frank who I met when he was playing bass with Air Supply but he plays with you know Gwen Stefani and stuff as well he invited us down to that it's just yeah like you said all these these usual session musicians that are when they're not on tour they're just kind of going down to their these these bars in Hollywood and just getting up and, and having a jam yeah and um but yeah that night they were just they were doing the entire wall album and they hadn't yeah, rehearsed no, no, it. It's... They just they just learned it that week, showed up and did the gig.
2: Yeah, so they read music as well, you know. So, they, I guess that makes things a lot a lot easier. Mm. Wish I could read music. I have troubles reading the newspaper.
0: <laughs> well, you're, you're. I mean, we're both similar in that our our, our dads were musicians. Uh, both my parents are musicians, but your your dad played guitar in some bands in England, where he's from. Yeah, in London. Yeah back in the 60s. So you would have grown up around a lot of that?
2: Yeah, kind of. They never, they, my parents didn't push me to play music, you know, just kind of my dad would play play on the piano or play guitar and I'd be more interested in it because he was doing it as opposed to like, you need to learn how to play this instrument. I think that's probably a good thing, you know, if you want your kids to do something, you don't push them into doing it. I can't talk, I don't have any children, but I'm just saying don't push them into it. Because because my mum was forced to play to learn how to play the piano, mm. and she can play it really well. But she hates playing it because she just every I guess every time she sat behind the piano, she was like, you know, had flashbacks of how horrible it was going to the lessons or something, you know. So I think that's why they never kind of they never really pushed it on us at all. Sure.
0: So around the time of two thousand and one, which I think when you joined the Sleepy Jackson, what were you? What was music to you around that time? Like, were you playing in bands? Had you?
2: Yeah, I was. I was playing around a um, bunch of different bands. I was playing with Nathan Gaunt, mm-hmm. and um, we did a couple of albums, and that was that was pretty cool. We'd always get like the Stage Three Big Day Out and stuff, the local stage. That was fun. And um, I just packed my bags in on the year two thousand and just went. I'm gonna do try and do something, and I went over east and just travel around on my own, and ended up going to all these different cities and landed in Melbourne and decided to stay there for a bit and uh, basically had the best time of my life. Had no no cash, you know, sleeping on a futon on the floor and I could barely pay the rent. But it was cool. You'd walk down Brunswick Street and there's all these venues and there's always sick bands and sick, sick musos, awesome musos playing. Didn't have to pay to get in, you know, I'd just buy a MIDI and sit there on that for the whole night.
0: And Were you playing in bands when you were in Melbourne? No, uh, a couple of little jam
2: sessions. One of my fondest memories though was because I didn't have a car obviously and I scored this gig just down the road. I was living in, I was living on Sackville Street in uh, – what, what suburb is the fucking Tote in? The
0: Tote? Oh, um, Collingwood. Yeah,
2: Collingwood. So living on Sackford, Sackville Street in Collingwood just right near the Tote and there was a bar just up the road. And so I put my drums onto a shopping trolley and wheeled them down the road. <laughs> And it was a jam, it was an open mic jam session thing, and I played this gig, and then I met I met this lovely girl there that night, and um, I was like, hey, you know, do you want to hang out? She says, yeah, yeah, cool. I said, oh, I'll give you a lift. And as I've like, walked outside, and she's like, you know, what? You've got a shopping trolley. Like, yeah. So basically, pushed my drums home with her in the front, and uh,
0: and yeah, it was cool. It's
2: a cool good time. <laughs>
0: And so, how do you get from carting your drums around to open mics in a shopping trolley in the middle of Collingwood to joining one of the most iconic pop bands to come out of Perth?
2: Um, My friend, Denson Baker, who I went to film and TV school with, he contacted me and, and was like, hey, man, I'm doing, he's living in Sydney. He's like, I'm doing this film clip for this band from Perth. Sleepy Jackson, do you know him? And I was like, Yeah, yeah. I said, Yeah, I know. I've met Luke a few times. I've uh, done a few shows with him. He's like, Oh, you should you come up and give us a hand, you know, be a camera assistant or something? I was like, Oh, yeah, cool. So I jumped on a train, went up there and um, helped them do the film clip. And it was right after the band had kind of broken up. Like, Luke was pretty much on his own. The producer was just him and the producer, and he convinced CMI to not you know, basically drop him because the band's has gone just sign him as a, just sign it under his name, you know. Well, that, that's right, isn't artist. it? Because
0: they, if I read correctly, they, the band got signed as a, they were a full band and they did a few weeks touring with like Magic Dirt or something and five weeks into the tour, I think, did the whole band just quit on Luke?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a long story.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, but, yeah. It's, it's actually quite an interesting story and it would be great for all the people involved, obviously, bar one of them who's unfortunately left the planet, but um, to tell their side of the story because obviously I wasn't there as well because I joined afterwards. Sure. But, um, but yeah, I joined where there was no band and Luke was like, oh, jam, eh? I was like, yeah, cool. So we went and, went into a studio and just had a drum, drum and guitar jam with him. And he's like, "Man, do you want to join the band?" I was like, "Yeah." He goes, "Yo, you got to move back to Perth." So I travel all around Australia to try and sort of, you know, get into a band, and then end up joining a band that's back here in Perth. So I came back, <laughs> and uh, and that yeah, that was the um, that was the kind of start of it. And it was a really strange time because uh, down the blues club one Tuesday night, and um, everyone's like, "Have you heard? Have you heard? There's been a bombing in New York," and it's like, "What?" Yeah, it's terrorists. And it was like, what's going on? It's like, yeah, yeah. Everyone thought the, the bomb's been dropped and that. Obviously, the news is just coming through. It's happening because it's Tuesday night here. Mm. So it was happening at that time, 8 o'clock in the morning kind of thing. I was like, this is bizarre. And then I went home, put the TV on, and there's a whole nine eleven thing going down. And, um, yeah, it was really strange. Similar kind of feeling to, to all this where it's like, shit, the world's never going to be the same again, you know. It's going to be different from now on. Um, and a lot of people, obviously, because that was 20 years ago, you know, it's like a lot of people don't really realize it's kind of like we've been through a similar thing. Well, I. Well, it's different. It's completely different. A similar thing where it's world changing, you know, it's like everyone's feeling it.
0: Totally. I mean, it's, that's the last thing I can remember that was so effective on a worldwide scale before this. But then this, I think, is. A is, is obviously so much bigger in that it's directly affecting the entire planet. But I, I mm. was I was 11 when 9-11 happened. So it was, it was quite odd to watch that on the news before I went into school. Um, mm. Part of me just associated it with a lot of movies I'd seen. So I didn't really, yeah. at that age, didn't really process the just the effect of what was going on. And it wasn't until I got home from school and they were still playing the footage And I knew they weren't going to play The Simpsons at six o'clock, and they were just going to keep playing that footage. That that's I think that's when I realised, okay, shit's getting real. And man, we I remember. You know what I remember about that day was uh, our teacher sat the class down and had a big chat to us about it. And she went, "Now, you would have seen something on the news this morning, maybe? Can anyone tell me what happened?" And one of the kids put his hand up and went, "Oh, someone flew a." plane into the empire state building and she went yeah yeah that's exactly what happened and then just moved on (laughs) (laughs) and i sat there i didn't say anything but (laughs) i and for a second i went hang on i'm pretty sure that wasn't the empire state building i saw on the on the telly and she just glazed over it yeah (laughs) so that's 2001 and you've just come back to perth at what point are you making lovers 2000 well we pretty much got stuck into it straight away i guess what was, um, what was your connection to Luke and the guys in the band at that point? Were you guys pretty pretty tight from the start and, and we, how involved were you in, in the creating of the music? Because I imagine Luke would be bringing a lot of songs in. Well, it was pretty
2: exciting because it was like, you know, something was happening and we had uh, – because Justin, yeah, Justin Burford and Rod Aravina were in the band as well. So he kind of introduced me to them and, and then we went over to Sydney to record And, uh, yeah, it was really exciting, you know, to be signed to a major label and have funding and, you know, be able to just, you know, got put up in
0: in accommodation and got the DMs. Well, this is when labels would just throw the amount of money at at some bands you wouldn't see these days, I imagine, as well.
2: Yeah, that's it. I mean, there's, you know, we used to joke that we were the last of the big spenders as far as a major label goes, you know, and it's kind of, you know, it kind of feels like that because I'm not too sure who got the same amount of, you know, tour support and advances that we got after us. So, yeah, it did, did change pretty quickly. Yeah, it was a good process. We just It was a very creative kind of vibe, coming up with ideas and stuff like that. Luke had a lot of lot of the ideas already down-packed, and on the second album as well, he was like, you know, it was like kind of like his masterpiece he had in his head, because we kind of... Yeah, with all the changes that happened, he just kind of wanted to do something. His, uh kind of like call it the, uh, you know, um, his Pet Sounds kind of album.
0: That's right. Was it Personality, One Was a Bird, One Was a, what was it called? One Was a Bird, One Was a Spider. Yeah. <laughs> and that was kind of the production on that record was was like on crack compared to the first one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pretty full on. The band seemed to become more about the two of you appearance-wise, I felt.
2: Yeah. Because, you know, we've always had that kind of revolving door, a lot of people coming in and out of the band. Yeah, it just sort of ended up for that album, it was just me and him and we we got some, some players to come in, which is pretty cool because we had um, you know, old, uh, Jim Magini came in from Mineral Oil and did some stuff and Julian Hamilton from Presets did all the orchestration. I was just going through it all before actually on my Pro Tools because I got all the sessions there and I was just kind of like soloing the tracks and stuff. It was pretty cool. Like the orchestra stuff is amazing.
0: Wow. So I, I didn't realise that, um, was that Julian from the presets?
2: Yeah, he kind of like wrote all the orchestral parts and then when we got the orchestra in, he kind of conducted the orchestra and that was great. Yeah, i see if I can I'll pull this thing up.
1: Can you hear that? Awesome.
2: And then the a cappella vocals are great as well. First part is the drums though. Check out the drums. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> four on the floor mate show me the money show me the money yeah it's i I've just been going through all those just uh going through all the videos and stuff oh, there's heaps of stuff there that we Roads. oh no that's a Royal, it's a. yeah Probably get majorly busted for playing this stuff. I don't even know if we're allowed to. I don't know what the copyright thing is. I don't know what any of the laws are anymore, you know?
0: I think everything's literally up in the air air at this point. point.
2: Everything changes. It's like, how are we supposed to know what we're allowed to and not allowed to do anymore? What were the
0: biggest differences for you between making the Lovers album and Personality? You know, I mean, it would have been you would have been in a completely different place in that the first record you would have jumped straight into it after just joining the band. Whereas this record you would have toured the world with them and you would have been, I guess, far more absorbed into the process of things by that point.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was really loving the, the Beach Boys thing, just the, you know, Crosby, Steels and Nash, just the multiple vocals. And, and I was fascinated by how good Luke was at tracking these things. Because there's literally there's hundreds of tracks of him double tracking, triple tracking, quadruple tracking harmonies, you know. So he would sing a melody, you just, and then he would sit there with his guitar and then work out the harmony and just layer it up until there was this huge choir.
0: And there's a lot of that being created in the studio. Yeah. So were you kind of going in maybe with less preparation than the first one and just creating it? Oh
2: yeah, the second one because the second album. There was already a whole bunch of songs that we had ready to go and then with band complications and people leaving kind of tainted those tracks a little bit and Luke's like, oh, I think I'm just going to... So really personally was like the third album, not the second one. The second one kind of got scratched.
0: Were, was it just you and Luke in the recording side of things as far as the band was concerned or had other people joined? And...
2: It was actually those songs were created by the three of us, so it was me, Luke and... Julian Hamilton he was playing Rhodes he was playing Wurlitzer Luke was Mm -hmm. playing acoustic guitar and I was on drums and we kind of created all those songs the demos are pretty cool actually because they're just like real laid back three piece vibe and then from that Julian went and put the orchestral arrangements together and then um, then we just had people come in and play over David Lane came in did some stuff Daniel Johns so it was kind of cool and it so we spent that time creating that and then when all the songs were there, we started recording in the same
0: studio. The one thing about that band I always think about is how despite maybe a lot of other bands sounding similar in style melodically with that classic pop kind of thing, there was something extremely unique about the Sleepies that no one else could ever do or really try to do. And was there ever any thought about what your, your place in the world like was at that point? Was there any thought of like big big picture stuff as you're you're creating this music and then knowing that it's going to go out there and you're going to have to go and, you know, flog it for a couple of years?
2: Yeah, because um, we just, uh, you know, that second album, we come back from touring for, you know, for two years basically and there was a lot of hype overseas for the band and just the the live aspect of it. So that was the word was getting around that it's like, yeah, there's a cool album. That's been released, but if you see them live, it's it's the album that's been completely twisted, turned inside out, and spat out the other side. And they're like, "Whoa!" So a lot of people are like they sound nothing like the album live. They some people liked it and some people hated it because you know you when you buy an album, you want to go and watch a band and you want it to sound exactly like the album. But then again, we've never been like that. I, I, you know, I remember when I saw Jeff Buckley playing at Belvoir Amphitheatre and it was like nothing
0: like the album. It was five-piece band and it was great you know that was always a lot more expected of bands i I think up until recently i feel like these days it's perhaps with the the more commonplace use of click tracks and in-ear monitors and backing tracks uh bands seem to be more about emulating the album that they've made especially popular bands you know bands who have a large audience that they're going to play to there's more of an allegiance to delivering the product, but just on maybe a, a higher level. Whereas it wasn't that long ago that it was perfectly normal for a band with, you know, one of the biggest records out at the time to just come out and completely flip it on its head when they'd walk out on stage.
2: Yeah. I think we we're sort of right in the middle of that. So people couldn't really work it out, you know. Um so it was but it's good. And, you know, Luke thrived on that. He loved how how you know he he took bad reviews and good reviews and put them in the same place, you know, whereas I'd take a bad review and go, oh, my God, we're done for, you know, and then there'll be a good review. I'll be, yeah, yeah,
0: we're a fucking great band. What hype were you dealing with overseas?
2: Well, there was a lot a lot of people, opinionators, you know, a lot of um, press, especially NME and all these, you know, and radio stations. Like I remember when we went and did KCRW, is that what it's called, KCRW, FM? It's like this. You know, huge radio show that all band, you know, once you get on there, it's, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, good publicity for you. Is that in the States? Yeah, it runs out of a university, but we didn't know anything about it. And I remember we rocked up, Luke was in a bad mood because we'd just done Coachella and it was just like, he was like, we had to get up at 6 a.m. to do it. he's like, what's this radio show? What's this all about? And he just <laughs> <laughs> kind of just didn't give this guy anything. He was asking these questions and it
0: was really frustrating for him, I think. But they have that show, uh, Morning Becomes a collector. Yeah, that's okay. it. Yeah. That's what we did, yeah. Which is kind of a big deal, right?
2: <laughs> but when you don't, so we just kind of were thrown into a lot of these things. Like when we did Conan O'Brien, like I didn't, it was like, okay, it's cool we're doing a TV show, but I didn't know anything about Conan O'Brien. We didn't. I've never seen it before, you know. Like maybe if it was the other one that was on late at night, every night that we did get in Australia. Um, but Conan was like a pay TV thing, you know, so didn't really think much of it. When we did it, we did a few of those shows that weren't, you know,
0: well known. But Well, yeah, because things like that, you're kind of dabbling with the mainstream at that point. And you've got to
2: realize too, it's like back then, it's like we did, you know, now you got iPhones and computers, like you get on the net just by picking your phone up, you know, but if you wanted to search something back then, you'd have to go to in an internet cafe or something, you know. Luke had a laptop and we used to spin out. It's like, oh, I can't believe he's got a laptop. Wow. Wish I had one of those. <laughs> It was kind of a big deal, but you couldn't get on the net just by cruising around anywhere, you know. There was no Wi-Fi or anything like that.
0: Sure. So when you're on the road and you know you've got certain shows and certain venues to play, some TV show, a radio appearance, you can't just quickly search ahead and and give yourself an idea of what you're in
1: for. No, I
2: mean you can look at the tour diary, I guess, but a lot of the times we were too drunk and stoned and on drugs to really know what the hell was going on, you know. We just did our job which rocked up, played, got smashed, jumped on the tour bus, went to sleep, woke up, played, got smashed, jumped on the tour bus, went to sleep.
0: <laughs> Get the picture. Well, you know, a lot of bands that go through that rigmarole, there's kind of a camaraderie that comes with it and a, you know, a brotherhood or, or sisterhood or whatever, you know. I just wonder how, how does that trajectory in that lifestyle, how does that work with a band that has had such a consistent element of that revolving door thing with members kind of coming and going.
2: Um, I don't know. I think I mean Luke's kind of had this this vision, you know, like he had the Empire of the Sun vision years and years ago, you know, because he used to talk about it. And I remember thinking, it's like, dude, that's it's all pretty cool. He's like, yeah, you can have dancers on stage and have pyros and confetti and big screens and lights and you know. I was like. That's cool, but it sounds really expensive,
1: <laughs> you know.
2: <laughs> and then, um and then, two thousand and four, we saw Flaming Lips for the first time at Big Day Out, and looks like see what I mean, man? It's sick. You can do this stuff, and I was like, well, yeah, I guess so. So then it was sort of, I was like, well, oh, it is possible, but it's still something that's you know a f- long way away for for us to you know be able to afford to do. And then he goes and does it you know so it's like so he doesn't let anyone anyone else's um negative comments affect him at all he'd read a really bad review of us at a gig that we did that someone didn't like and we just read it and just fold it up put it away
0: carry on it's it's kind of that's a quality of a lot of um i guess leaders in any environment particularly in music you know people who run who are in charge of the band on the you know the creative vision side of things just going for that vision regardless of what people are saying around you and i imagine sort of going along alongside that could be pretty uh like maybe seedy of your pants at times yeah because
2: it can be frustrating because you think you know better but in hindsight you look back and go okay i didn't know better if you had listened to me it would have it would have ended badly <laughs> or just ended. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, no, it's pretty, it's been a pretty, pretty interesting run. It was cool going to Dave Friedman's place to, to get that second album mixed because he, he mixed it, but then, um, weren't really happy with the, with the mixes. So, it never ended up getting released. Who You know, Dave Freeman he did like MGMT and Flaming Lips and I think he did Tame Impala's first album as well.
0: I think he did the first two. I know he did a, a Spoon record. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, he's one of those people that's quite, quite a uh, bit of a mixing artist by the sounds. Oh man, of he's amazing.
2: Really enjoyed that.
0: Were you were you there while he was mixing? Are you watching? Yeah, you watching? yeah.
2: We went up there and stayed there. It was really good. Um, still keep in touch with him every now and then. Say good day. Apparently, he's building another sort of studio next to the place where we where we mixed it's so like an old house, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so cool. And all the all the memorabilia there as well, you know. All the stuff from the Flaming Lips albums—you got the weird instruments and tubular bells and stuff like that, baritone guitar stuff that you know it's been used on those albums. But it's a shame that it never really got released because it's it's a different album those mixes.
0: Is that just because of the amount of layers on the record that depending on which elements you hear louder than others could in itself just reinvent the track altogether?
1: Yeah. Well,
2: I think Dave kind of was like, man, there's so much stuff going on here. We need to sort of sift through it. And I think he pulled a lot of stuff out to just to let it breathe a bit. And, mm. you know, you got to re- remember that Luke spent like hours, days and days like recording Tracks, vocals, especially, but guitar tracks and things. You know, a lot of the time the the producer, um, Scotty, would just set him up, you know, and leave him in there, and he'd do it himself. Kind of, thing. he'd record himself, you know. Um, so when someone comes along and goes, "Oh, I have got to get rid of this shit," you know, it's like looks like it's not shit, man. And I think there was a bit of a clash there. It's not like I don't think he meant that it is shit. It's just like we got just another way of we got to get rid of we have got to move some of this stuff out, you know. And um, and Luke wanted all that stuff in the in the in the album, and so it's like, so it never it never got released.
0: When I did join you for those tequilas in Santa Monica, you were there with um, Ben Witt from who's a, a solo artist himself. People might remember him from his band, The Chemists and you guys were doing an elusive third Sleepy Jackson record. Yeah, it's still been made <laughs> 4 years later. <laughs> so how long's that been going now?
2: Uh, 4 years or 5 years. I spoke to Luke last week and um, he's doing pretty cool. Yeah, it's not you know, it's sort of put on the shelf and then gets pulled down again and the good thing about it is it's like at least it's not going to get put out until it's right. Kind of sure. Thing, you know? How
0: is that coming back to the sleepy stuff after being kind of dormant for a while. I mean the band had kind of stopped touring after personality for quite some time, didn't you? Yeah. It's good to have a break.
2: And um it was yeah, it was really good to sort of get together and, you know, put put some songs together. We kind of look at a few ideas and then we wrote some while we're there as well. And so the songs are cool. We just haven't got the production right, you know, we've tried to record it with a producer in, in L.A. and um, didn't quite get there. So, um, yeah, a bit of time and maybe it'll get
0: finished. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm not the only person who can't wait to hear that record when it is done. Um, but uh, thanks so much for uh, hanging out, dude. It's been good. Yeah, yeah man. Thanks for having us. It's been good fun. Cool. Catch you next
1: time. i say you must be crazy it's been so cold at night And I've been working but I don't want to work today so come on, let's go, just
0: take us And there we have it. Malcolm Clark. there giving us an insight into those years with the Sleepy Jackson and all the other things he's been getting up to. Thanks again for tuning in and listening to us. Um, depending on what platform you are checking this podcast out on, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, iHeartRadio, um, please give us a subscribe And uh, maybe tell one of your, your friends To check it out too You know? Do a little solid If your old mate Timmy Consider it a uh, nice uh, 30th birthday present eh? um, Usually I leave you guys with uh, The song Your House I'm going to do something different today um, My side project Indoor Fins Is going to be releasing new music In a couple of weeks So I'm going to leave you with uh, The last single slash first single um, of Indoor Fins um, to get you ready for that one. So here's the song. It's called Here It Goes. Until next week, I know you're not going anywhere, so stay safe, stay alive.